Hello, everyone. Uh, we are back with yet another podcast. We are not dead. We are merely like the Phoenix returned from the ashes and the long lethargy of the post-Christmas slumber. Uh, I'm your host, Dan Fuller. I'm joined today by the big man, Sam Fisher. Sam, how are you doing? I'm good, yeah. I was just thinking about not dead and undead. Does that make us un- undead? Or undead. does it... Undead, but if... I think if you're not dead, you're alive. And if you're undead, you're like, you know... So we can't be un undead. <laughs> you, can't, you can't. Well, you can't have double negatives, can you? You can't. No, it's true. That's very bad. It's very naughty. <laughs> naughty, naughty double negatives. Bookseller uses double negative. Bookseller and writer, I should add. Bookseller and award-nominated author uses double negatives. Run <laughs> the headline in the title. <laughs> Lefty liberal author uses double negatives. <laughs> Maniac, careless, leftish author <laughs> wreaks havoc with his double negatives. Um, uh, well, yeah, yeah, how are you? How are you doing, Dan? I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, playing lots of video games <laughs> as usual. I've got a new mic, a very crisp new mic, which I'm very pleased with. Um, thanks to my aunt for my birthday Amazon vouchers. Uh, shout out. Don't say uh, that dirty word. Aunts <laughs> <laughs> and uncles everywhere. If you want to get your uh, nieces and nephews a nice birthday present, buy Burley Fisher gift cards. That's Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Embarrassing. I know. Embarrassing. <laughs> um, um, what yeah, have we got so, today, Sam? What, what have we got today? today? So we're actually trying out something new today. Yeah. Uh, I, we, I was beginning to think that there's not really anything novel about being isolated now. <laughs> there's a certain certain tired yeah,ness uh, to um, the idea of an isolation station. So we thought we'd mix it up and instead really? send people to a desert island with some books. I mean, <laughs> I've got no idea where we got this idea from. I, th- I think we just had a brainwave. Yeah. You know, it was like a, a light bulb went on and it was like a, a big flash of inspiration. And we thought we must, we must do this concept. So we're going to come up with a great name for the concept. Wait for it. It is. Yes. Drum roll, please. Desert Island Books. <laughs> what do you think? Genius. <laughs> if anyone from the BBC is listening, please do not yeah. sue us. We do not have the financial resources. To yes, we've got your cease and desist letters. <laughs> haven't opened them yet. Um, anyway. Can we jump by? And uh, joining us um, in the isolation station um, to be cast off to a desert island in a in a complete festival of mixed met- metaphors is uh, <laughs> Olivia Sidic. Um, hey! His new book, Asylum Road, has just been published. Uh, it's an excellent novel about a young couple in London um, uh, who are coming to terms with uh, their differing backgrounds um, and trying to kind of reconcile uh, different expectations about what that will mean that's a really terrible summary <laughs> <laughs> where can i um, buy this book <laughs> but in sarajevo um Mousel oh, in cornwall uh london um yeah and i guess it's a kind of investigation of how far it's possible to um get over generational trauma together and how to kind of reconcile that within a relationship um yeah, but it's just really sharp. I think Olivia's right. I mean, I'm really biased because we published Exposure, obviously, but um, <laughs> I just think she's an incredibly sharp and observant writer um, and has uh, the characters incredibly well drawn and it's just really moving. Um, so, and yeah, it's, it's unputdownable. So, if you are feeling 
listless or unable to concentrate on things i think asylum road is a really great novel to um pick up and to to try and pull yourself out of that reading torpor and where, anyway, can, you get, that's... where can you get hold of it sam well certainly not on fucking amazon dan <laughs> 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 uh, you can buy it from Burley your book, of course. Yeah. Uh, we did have signed copies, but it was so popular that they're all gone. Um, I, I don't know why I'm telling you this because it's not very sales. It's just it? taunting people yeah. with uh, what they could have bought. Um, <laughs> but we do have plenty of copies. Please do uh, order. And uh, well, I do want to take an opportunity to say thanks so much to everyone who's been ordering for Click and Collect. It's been yeah, great to so um, see you at the door and to um, to kind of complain to you about how bored I am. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, that's 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 Olivia. Um, Olivia also has uh, her, we have her previous novel, Sympathy, and of course, Exposure. The essay was published by Peninsula Press. Have you um, got any kind of deal if you buy all three? No. Okay. <laughs> you get to, you get all three you get, of them. You get all three of them at full <laughs> yeah. price. Okay. We might, we might have a deal. We'll we'll talk about that at the end. Um, <laughs> uh, I think yeah. that's a, let's shut up Everything. and uh, cool. let's, move let's, roll on. Hello, Olivia. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having doing? me. I'm fine. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I've literally got no news, so I'm fine. Good. Me too. <laughs> brightly, brightly and entirely unconvincingly. As I stand over my sink, uh, trying to find sufficient Wi-Fi oh, God. to record the podcast. Well, it, it adds life. to my feeling that it's a casual chat that I needn't have prepared for because I haven't. I could even make you a cup of tea and... <laughs> thanks for being the guinea pig for this this new version of the podcast where we uh steal um desert island discs idea and simply transplant it to, to books um <laughs> i think nice. it's gonna be it's gonna be fun it's, it's definitely i think talking about being isolated has lost its uh its flavor a year on so we certainly need to find ways to keep it interesting just to feel something yeah <laughs> yeah just to feel something that's why we do anything <laughs> um, so yeah, so just to explain to listeners, we're going to um, talk through five books picked by Olivia as kind of the most important or most meaningful or superlative, pick your own, uh, which will be defined <laughs> as we go through, um, and uh, talk about how that uh, has kind of influenced her writing life as she has written her past two novels, Sympathy and Asylum Road, and of course, uh, the excellent essay, Exposure, published by uh, Peninsula Press. Commissioned so, and yeah. edited by Sam. Yeah. So, I mean, I might be a little bit biased about that one, but <laughs> perhaps the best of three? I don't know. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um, Certainly the only one I'm getting any royalties from. <laughs> <laughs> Publishers take note, um, if anyone's listening in. Um, great. I, I guess we should just kick, kick straight off. Um, I think first, let's talk about... Uh, we were talking about, you know, what these when trying to pick these books, what they might mean. And we were talking about the wide Sargasso Sea as perhaps being the book that may be a writer or have something to say or, or yeah. have a way of saying it. I mean, I, to be honest, like lists always really panic me in general and also in terms of picking books. So I just went with my kind of instinct, like, you know, don't overthink it. And this one, I think, was the first one that came to my mind because it's the first book I remember reading that well first of all it's the first book I remember reading as a kind of teenager which wasn't in any way like to do with school or to do with any kind of you know like you should read this it was just something my granny gave to me actually and she was the one I went to stay with in New York when I wrote Sympathy 
Um, and she always, like, our relationship was a bit, she was sort of estranged in a way from our family for a while because she left when my mum was only, like, seven or something and just and left to go literally to the other side of the world. And my relationship with her for a long time was basically, like, letters and being sent books um, from her. And this was one of the books she sent. And actually, like, it's quite a telling one in terms of why she might like it so much. But um, Wide Sargasso Sea was the first book that made me really see how kind of, I guess, fun might be the wrong word, but like playful you can be within text um, and how they can sort of speak to each other. And, um, you know, that obviously they've been constructed by somebody living and breathing with thoughts you know like yours and and actually a retelling of them kind of shows how they've been constructed in that way and I think until then I'd always thought of them as like you know they exist as these objects that just sort of materialized and and I hadn't really joined the dots in that way so this kind of retelling of you know the kind of mad woman in the attic like how she came to be there in you know and, and and why um I thought that like that having already read Jane Eyre was like a really kind of invigorating I guess experience and then on top of that I think Jean Rhys is an amazing amazing writer and it kind of just opened up that kind of how you can do a kind of feminist or anti-colonial response to other books and and produce something that is in its own right like an amazing work of art um so yeah definitely that was I think the first time I really got excited about reading and analyzing in that way um yeah rather than just like you know it's fun to kind of tease out the meaning of this line and then get a good mark for it in your essay kind of thing mm. i love i also i love the idea that kind of the letters between you and your grandma are the foundational text well uh, yeah olivia Sidget <laughs> writer yeah well I think you know it was she was the only person really I had like that kind of epistolary relationship with like she refused to um you know the the grandmother in in sympathy is slightly based on her rejection of modern technology and so she used to write them on on her Olivetti typewriter um so there was also this sense of like you know, it wasn't like other conversations I was having because A, I wasn't really having like literary conversations with anyone. And also they did sort of arrive as though from another century with like, you know, like if she made a mistake, she had to just like carry on kind of thing. And you could see the workings going into the writing of the letter Mm -hmm. um, in a very different way from, let's say, email. Um, So, yeah, I think that whole experience did really kind of yeah open open up my understanding of text as being constructed and in conversation with each other and obviously it opened up my first experience I guess of talking in a kind of non-academic but sort of I guess I was trying to impress her as well you know I was I I was trying to impress her I wanted her you know she was the kind of grandmother who didn't really take an interest in grandchildren until they could offer something back (laughs) so you always need that first reader don't you (laughs) and she was also oh sorry go on yeah I was just saying that you always need that person who you you, who you would imagine reading if you were to write a book exactly and she I think you know unlike understandably parents obviously just like want you to be safe and ideally like have a nice safe job where you make a good you know salaried income 
but grandparents can be a bit more mischievous and so when I wanted to quit my full-time job um in order to write understandably my parents were like that is madness and my granny was like go on do it (laughs) Um, yes granny (laughs) yeah exactly thank god granny Thank God for Granny. I mean, you know, yeah. she she was problematic in other ways, I'm sure, but she definitely gave me that and that kind of like sneaky kind of, you know, it'll be okay in the end, hopefully. I mean, yeah. she's probably wrong, but, but <laughs> most, for most people, she'd probably be wrong, but luckily it worked out. <laughs> thinking about, well, when, when we were talking about this book just before the, we started recording as well, I was also thinking about sympathy and about how when we did the event, first put it out, you you mentioned that it was first set in the 18th century. This book that then went on to be yeah, it was definitely talked be about historical. it as an Instagram novel. Yeah, <laughs> so I suppose do you, do you think you always have a sense of you, is there something that's at the heart of a story that you want to communicate that you know there's there's ways of transforming the form or transforming the setting. It's all yeah. getting to the heart of the same thing. Did that I maybe think... come from the? I think maybe unconsciously, definitely. I think the books that I am always most drawn to are ones where there is a real specificity of like detail and time and place, you know, like it's, um, you know, that was one of the things I faced in terms of people telling me that sympathy would really date. And I was like, I kind of want it to date. I kind of want it to be like a time capsule of exactly what it was like in 2014, you know, like references in the news and the the types of you know interactions you could have in certain forms of you know like in certain apps I wanted that to be very specific but then I also liked the idea that it was speaking across this sounds very grand but that it was would speak across time as well in the sense of like you know the first American novel was called something like the date the power of sympathy or the danger of sympathy you know like mm-hmm. that it was in conversation obviously with novels that are about that kind of the, the process of sympathy by which you kind of put yourself into the mind of somebody else and how that's like yeah. the internet and I always find I guess that like well certainly with sympathy I found that it was easier to think and write in interesting hopefully ways about the internet by estranging it and and for me putting something in a different historical context or at least getting to it from that position of having thought through it you know from this Mm -hmm. other vantage point helped to kind of estrange it and then helped me to write in ways about it that were sort of unfamiliar and therefore interesting to me at least um you know, it's similar, I guess, with The Silent Road. Like, I didn't, I definitely didn't want to write a, let's say, Brexit novel. And I wasn't really, that's not the primary interest of the book. But coming at it through thinking about, you know, the, the Balkans in the 90s, that was a helpful way of, like, you know, making comparisons and, and drawing out. And Yeah, and I definitely think that is what's going on in this book, Why Sargasso Sea, you know. And, and again, like, there's there's obviously other books that do a similar thing, whether it's with, you know, Jane Eyre. In fact, wasn't there that book of like, um, are they supposed to be texts? I think where like somebody wrote texts as though it was from Rochester to his um, wife, and <laughs> like the attic wife um, is like responding to his messages. I love that. Like I I really love those kind of um, retellings. I suppose fan of... fiction. Fan fiction is a kind of. Um, totally modern internet version of that isn't it it's kind of yeah finding finding and uh, finding the points of connection and then kind of enlarging pinch pinch and pinch and zoom pinch and zoom yeah (laughs) and it's a really it's a really interesting way to be creative always i think to have constraints you know to have like 
some parameters um, at the beginning that you can then dive, you know, divert or diverge away from. Because I, I find it difficult to imagine like just starting a story on a blank piece of paper with no like in some kind of Im- imagined vacuum. I mean, it's never a vacuum, obviously, but you know, the idea that you're just like starting to tell a story that doesn't in some way like have a constraint for me is quite scary and daunting. Definitely, yeah. It's daunting and it doesn't make me feel very creative. No. Well, to kind of go back to what you were talking about before with sympathy, I like this idea of kind of fit being a productive estrangement. Um, I think estrangement is such a good word for that. And, in you know, trying to make a link onto another one of the, your five books. It made me think about Outline by Rachel Carr, um, which is another book that you picked. Yeah. And this process of um, kind of the fiction estranging um, from life. Mm. Um, and what that can produce, you know, what what that distills or what that what that allows access to. And I, I just wondered if you could talk a bit about outline when you read it and what why it was important to you. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm sure a lot of people don't have this reaction, and they and they find, let's say, books about white middle class women on you know literary tours or whatever not not very interesting but i i found it um, i'm sure no one will make that criticism olivia (laughs) (laughs) i i found it um really i think exciting because it was so banal if you see what i mean like i i i found it really like um arresting to and now obviously I've read the, you know, the rest of the trilogy and there are other people who do similar things. So, you know, I'm obviously always talking about these experiences or reading them with a kind of certain level of naivety or, you know, at the time kind of thing. Um, I think I read it literally when it, I can't remember when I first read it. I think it was in 2015 or 2016. I'm not sure. Um, but I, I came to it like having, I guess, spent most of my life reading books where plot was the whole point and, you know, or like, or even just language, you know, the kind of performances that were supposed to impress. And of course the book does impress because she's got an amazing kind of control over the story. But to see you take her taking away all the elements that were supposedly what makes a book impressive and still somehow succeeding I'm taking like really familiar, um, you know, just, I mean, maybe, maybe I've never been in that position myself, but familiar in the sense of like just a conversation that kind of meanders, um, just moving through an airport or just, you know, having a chat with somebody who's like, is it, the, is, is it that book in which the woman um, can't stop eating jam and everything from the fridge? I can't remember. Yeah, I now, think the so. trilogy in the, in the apartment. Yeah, the playwright yeah. who's had that awful, um, who's had the awful like mugging experience where like she now has sort of just got herself into a real nervous state. But like yeah. those kind of, um, those kind of events is basically all that happens in a way in that book. And it's just obviously Rachel Cusk's um, seemingly passive eye that's recording it all I found that really um, reassuring I guess in the sense that there were just again like like what wide Sargasso see it just shows you that there's this whole other way that you could tell a story and yeah. I think it was especially um, useful and reassuring to me at that point because I think I'd got to the 
to the position that she had, which was to say that fiction can kind of be fake and embarrassing. And like, it just feels, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, the response to sympathy or some of the response to sympathy was that like, you know, the character doesn't really have a personality. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to say in that really annoying way, that's the point, but that is sort <laughs> yeah. of the point, you know, that she's not this kind of 19th century character who has this kind of moral arc and has this, you know, real internal life that's kind of easy to map. She's much more like the child of algorithms and, you know, sort of data being harvested that then kind of determines her next move. And and I found it really yeah. interesting to think about characters who don't have that like knowable inner life. Um, and, it, you know, and, and definitely Cusk does that brilliantly. And so yes. the idea that that was, it was okay to say that I found it really difficult to like invent characters and like give them backstories and so on. Not difficult, but just somehow like um, embarrassing. Like I was a kid with my dolls kind of thing. Yeah, um, somehow less interesting. I think that, that seeming passivity that you describe is what's so powerful. That kind of in, inverting the role of the protagonist yeah. as in, into a listener rather than a kind of actor. Yeah. So I guess uh, the way that it functions is that you only learn about the protagonist's life through what she is willing to reveal <clears throat> in sympathy to other people's trauma or anxiety. So it's, it's a kind of backwards... Um, but perhaps actually more realistic um, if, you associate, if you're associating as a reader with the protagonist way of coming yeah, to... I've... Yeah. Well, sorry, I, the, 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 there was a pause there. I thought you'd stop, but you hadn't stopped. <laughs> <laughs> Just stumbling <laughs> over my words. No, it was, yeah. it was actually the connection, I think. But uh-huh. the, yeah, no, what you say is really true. And I feel like it does that same thing, I guess, of showing the construction of the book itself which I find really interesting. You know, it doesn't shy away from, it doesn't pretend that there's this omniscient narrator or this kind of, it's very much like this is the lens through which you're being handed this story. And this is sort of how it came about. And I think that certainly like the way that the internet has changed the way that we, um, you know, what we can do around, let's say when we read, we can instantly look something up. We can instantly Google the author. It already exists within this conversation often, you know, the mm-hmm. reviews or the Amazon ratings or whatever it is, it's all there right at our fingertips. It's not like, you know, when reviews used to be in a newspaper that then got thrown away. So if you didn't read it, tough luck. You know, all of that context is already there Yeah. when you come to a book. And so to kind of, to to acknowledge that you can't really get away from that and therefore to to have a character who sort of is like just this I was... I as in E-Y-E, but also, I guess, as in I, um, was, yeah, really interesting. And then, obviously, I got through that. I, I got into more of her books and had under, and understood in a, in a new way that that was a very new style of writing for her. And it came about through her own experience of having been, um, you know, really called out, I guess, in her previous books, like, you know, the motherhood memoir and the divorce memoirs and and so on. And then understanding that it was like a reaction to to criticism, which I also found really interesting because, you know, I really value good literary criticism. And I think it can often, even if it's like, in her case, not all of it was very valid and often it was like pretty nasty ad hominem stuff um, that misunderstood what she was really trying to do and, and so on. I do think that it's really nice 
to feel like you can have a conversation where your work does respond to, to criticism and it kind of helps you change and grow as a writer and do that think, do you think, think was... that's more difficult now to cut you know thinking back to what you were saying about the kind of archive the internet archive and how um the you know algorithms kind of chuck information about um previous work at you as soon as as soon as you encounter it for the first time on the internet do you think it's more difficult to have mm. a kind of a kind of critical conversation in your work with reader engagement than it would have been say 20 years ago or do you think there are actually perhaps possibilities in that I definitely think there are possibilities yeah I think I think that the problem is more like people a lot of people seem to have an outdated understanding of the dynamic and that that needs to I guess like there needs to be an awareness of what the dynamic sort of has changed to in order to have like a fruitful you know more I guess honest conversation about how that works um, rather than like pretending that it doesn't exist I mean I think what I have found I love the novel form it I feel like it suits the kind of the things that I'm interested in doing more than other forms but the, the the difficulty with is with it is that unless you're, let's say, you know, uh, Ali Smith or someone who can just say, right, I want this published, like, next month, please. Um, and even then, you know, it's always it's always like out of step. It always comes yeah. a bit later. It always takes longer. It exists mainly for people as like an analog object that you have to read and um, <laughs> yeah. get to the end of before you can sort of maybe have an opinion. Whereas obviously everything else that's happening on on Twitter or like viral reviews that's very like instant and becomes the conversation much more easily for like sound bites and clickbait and so on um yeah, and so I there is this sort of mismatch for critics as well to to find a voice in amongst the kind of what well, you know I suppose professional critics to find a voice in amongst yeah. everything else because there's a certain slowness and delay that's that's important I think in criticism which is um made impossible by the demands of <laughs> goodreads and yeah. everything else you know <laughs> the speed with which people have to make decisions about what something means um mm. yeah and i think i think what i've noticed um with my own reviews is that that as in the reviews other people make of my work is that um there seems to be a kind of arc where it's like everyone maybe like holds back a bit <laughs> waiting to see what other people might say in their reviews and so it kind of it sticks to the kind of it basically it often is a kind of slight rehash of the blurb which is funny because I actually don't write the blurbs and you know with Asylum Road for example I'm very happy with the blurb but I don't I wouldn't have written that myself if you see what I mean so I'm like oh okay interesting um and then and then people start to like stake out a, you know a view and opinion and then I guess if you're like a, if you're a really famous writer like if you're a Sally Rooney or something then obviously there's the inevitable like counter take and then the backlash to that or whatever but like I definitely feel like um you know the reason that there aren't maybe more people like Patricia Lockwood or Lauren Euler giving their kind of style of you know not pretending to write an objective review, just acknowledging that a review, like all writing, is always going to be personal. I think it's because people, yeah, are scared of like staking out something that could so quickly be, you know, tides could so quickly turn on the internet. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. In the blink of an eye. Right. Um, so to, to move on to um, another one of your books, um, I wanted to ask you about the Argonauts because we've been talking about life writing and 
you've mm. done it in both senses in the sense that you know as you were saying with sympathy there are elements of your grandma and in the grandma and sympathy and then with exposure you wrote um much more directly about your own life and experiences on the writing residency and how that informed your um productive estrangement that you perform <laughs> in your fiction i'm glad um, we can call it that now yeah <laughs> yeah hold that as a safe arms distance so I, yeah i mean i wondered what what was important to you about the way that maggie nelson uh writes from her own life and uh, kind of what you took from that um so i read that in um i think it was the summer of 2016 and it was right before sympathy came out and I really, I, yeah, this is one of those books I can really only talk about as a fan as opposed to like, you know, with a kind of nice critical distance. But it, it de- definitely feels like a book that was, um, it kind of gave me, I feel like, permission to not worry too much about what was strictly personal and what was sort of, you know, me taking on other because it basically just sort of made it really obvious to me that like I said there is no writing that isn't personal like even if you're even if you're if you've got a character who's voicing a view that is completely the opposite of what you might personally hold the way that you're putting that view into the mouth of that character is in some way informed by the way you see that view and you know the way you see people like that so that 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 sense that you can have a completely kind of genre defying book which doesn't that just doesn't tie itself up in knots to self-justify only only thinks about it in ways that it can be interesting and like enhance the experience of writing the text in terms of moving obviously from this very personal story um of Maggie Nelson's sort of family to, to out out obviously into like you know gender theory and 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 just much more existential questions and also, I just had that one of those experiences, you know, where you just underline something and you think like, oh, my God, <laughs> yes, like this is, you know, I'm having a kind of mystical experience, which, you know, um, is not to be sniffed at. Sometimes it's just there was a paragraph basically. Yeah, there was a paragraph in the Argonauts, which I actually ended up having. Uh, so I got married uh, last summer when it was briefly allowed again with like, you know, eight people um and obviously we were not allowed anything like readings or music or whatever because that would add in add time to the whole thing it was only allowed to be like 15 minutes but because I thought it was sad not to have any kind of I don't know like I I like the idea at least of those 15 minutes in some way having a kind of footprint afterwards other than a, a few photos I printed out the readings I would have had and um, there's a paragraph from the Argonauts which was in there which was um, you know when she talks about towards the end like the pleasure of abiding and ordinary devotion and basically understanding that you may return to the same themes in one's work we rewrite the same notes in the margins over and over etc and uh, such revisitations basically constitute a life and that was sort of again like made me see that there may be basically themes I keep on returning to in different ways but that's okay that's not being stuck that's (laughs) that's life yeah yeah I think that I I have have no memory of who it is but someone said that the best novelists just write the same book over and over again 
Um, well, that sounds like someone I should <laughs> befriend. Yeah, I mean, I'm only really because obviously I've only written two novels and one nonfiction sort of mini book, and so I'm only really starting to work out that that may be true for me as well. But I think a lot of writers feel like they put well, certainly a lot of novelists feel like they put all of their ideas, all like their lifetime of of kind of notes and thoughts and anecdotes or whatever into their first book and then when it comes to their second they're like oh my god the cupboard is bare <laughs> I've got nothing <laughs> new and and obviously like one answer to that is well stop worrying about writing and go and live some more and then you will have something in the cupboard but another I guess is that you just find new interesting ways to explore or to change your mind about those existing themes yeah, and like it's her. you know you're not, Make yeah and the point isn't novelty necessarily it's yeah. like maybe deepening a groove or like walking the same path so it becomes you know your own or whatever do you, do you feel we have enough distance from sympathy and asylum road yet to, to kind of see see what the links are and perhaps feel what which links you'd want to pursue going forward or I do have enough, I definitely have an, I put a lot of distance between myself and sympathy. And again, like, you know, there are lots of differences in those books, but a part of the difference doesn't really come from me. It comes from context, like one book being your first and the other, you know, your debut, which is a very different thing in so many ways, not least the way that it's edited or whatever it is, you know, marketed, etc. It's very different, I guess, from a second novel. And I also switched from Pushkin Press to Bloomsbury. So again, it was a very different experience. But the themes, um, the themes in that book, I think, have a lot in common. Um, even if, yeah, it's, it's funny, because it makes me see in sympathy that obviously, the, the reason I was talking or trying to talk about certain dynamics to do with tech and technology were to explore, you know, the things that unnerve or make me anxious or preoccupy me in different ways in Asylum Road, you know, to do with like how people can have just two such different ways of seeing the same thing and the way that we can, you know, generate these fantasies and live within them quite comfortably without, you know, without really ever being disabused of them and how that, obviously that polarization that we're all living in right now um in terms of what you know what counts as objective or subjective etc i love the way that it returns to that idea because i think there's an idea that um you know power people who live in the same house living in parallel realities is somehow a product of the internet but that kind of uh negates or kind of hides the real reasons or you know the fact that that has been happening yeah. forever. Exactly, exactly. I think with all these things, it's not, it's not that it's new, but it's like, it's like people's understanding of the dynamic has to catch up with the new situation, not, you know, that the... Because the, the, it, obviously it used to be that if you lived in one village, you'd probably have a very different <laughs> take on certain things from if you lived somewhere else on the other side of the world, obviously, and people understood that. But I think because people by and large understand so little about how the internet actually works it's like we haven't necessarily got that kind of real you know the level of like things that are often purposefully secret you know like we don't know how a certain algorithm works because we're not allowed to know and that yeah. kind of thing but also like people just understandably have better things to do with their time maybe, <laughs> but <laughs> well at the moment i'm not sure if we do so maybe this is the moment where we try and figure it out and take the internet back. Um, so, yeah, thinking about form um, and, you know, 
breaking form and making form, making something new of it. I wanted to talk a bit about um, uh, Claudia Rankin's book, Citizen, which is the next on your list. Um, uh, and it's a collection of prose poetry, so it's the it's you know it's the only book on the list which is is poetry. And I wondered when you read that and how it affected you and how it made you think about your own writing differently, perhaps. Or I love this book so much; it's so like powerful. And um, yeah, I'm going to try not to fangirl with this one as well. But um, well, we, actually, we've said fan fiction is good, so being yeah, a fan, fan is obviously good. also good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I think I think this one I first um when did I first first read it? I think I first read it not that long after it came out. Um maybe it was in like Oh, I don't actually know when it came out. I think it came out in America in 2014. Anyway, I I read it a while back and then um I taught a lecture series at King's where it was non creative nonfiction and um one of them was on, you know, it was like place, events, so on. And for the events one, I chose, I wanted to choose books that like worked at a variety of different scales in terms of how they dealt with the events they were describing. And so I went from like, um, you know, Svetlana um, Alexeyevich uh, to who else? Oh, uh, Ghosts of the Tsunami, Richard Lloyd Parry, like all these different kind of uh, nonfiction books. And then I chose... Claudia Rankine's Citizen because I really wanted to have something that worked at the very, I think that and, and Annie Erno's Happening were the two I wanted to use that worked at the really kind of um, micro level, the kind of personal, but obviously the, the what's so powerful for me anyway about this book is the way that it moves from those kind of tiny microaggression moments out into this much bigger, you know, into history, into obviously centuries of of um of just awful oppression and um i really admire well so much about claudia rankine's work in fact i think the first time i properly kind of encountered her was when i was thinking about stuff to do with sympathy and obviously part of the title and part of the point of that book is like can you ever get a handle on someone else's experience or like imagine yourself into someone else's life and um she had a Claudia Rankine had a collection um where she wrote the foreword uh about the racial imaginary and kind of you know it's like a it's a really you know I find it a really useful answer to the question of like can you write beyond what you know or should you just stick to what you know and it was a kind of for me that was really useful and then when I came to this there's a you know she does this um brilliant kind of she obviously I think gathered quite a lot of the stories from friends um and then uses not the first person but the second person to tell them which again I think was so clever the way that um you know it sort of stops somebody from thinking okay but this is one person who had this one experience so I can just sort of maybe discount it or I can you know um maybe if you're a white reader sort of switch off um it kind of really implicates you but also it kind of um it kind of it makes you feel you know there's that section where she's talking about Serena Williams and there's the kind of um Hawkeye kind of camera the idea that you can really laser in on on like human action and I think that that for me was what this book does so well is is by sort of saying you it's like you're kind of really 
you feel like under the microscope yourself, even as um, obviously what the events that she's talking about might feel quite removed from some people's experience. Um, and yeah, I think in that whole book, the way that she makes the kind of invisible so visible, the way that she weaves together all these, di- you know, there's, there's images in there, there's, um, you know, all different kinds of things which expand what I guess traditionally like the lyric is in terms of it's personal normally. And this is very much personal, but it's showing the scope of what the personal is. Um, and that kind of feeling of accumulation that builds up um, so that it sort of really, I guess, simulates what the experience must be for, uh, you know, for people who just experience this daily, let's say, microaggression, this slow drip drip, which can't re- you can't really put your finger on it on one instance. And it doesn't you know, necessarily translate to explaining, having to explain to a white person what that is and what's what's happening. But through the experience of accumulation, you feel the weight of it in this really clever way. Yeah. And it's very moving as well as being very clever. Yeah, I think it's that's 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 the rare thing, isn't it? A book that is 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 incredibly emotionally impactful, but uh it's also very clever, but you don't feel the cleverness of it. You feel implicated. I th- I think that there's been so many the, the, it's such a successful use of second person. I think there have been so many imitators um, since. But I think yeah. that it's, it's, the, it's the way that uh, Rankin uses it to, to bind the personal to the political, to, to, give, to give the personal a sense of kind of national, international scale. Um, yeah, she, I think she talks about um, the self-self and the historical self, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. Like the way that you know which is a kind of yeah I guess a kind of challenge to what I mean that again I like I like books which do that not just sort of genre challenging but the kind of the challenge of like what is the boundary of the self and like how far can it extend or like what you know obviously stay in your lane has lots of useful applications but it can also um you know I've had conversations with people about let's say writing autofiction and obviously some people are like well that's very narcissistic and then other people like Ben Lerner would say that's actually the opposite of narcissistic because you're being humble about the limits of what you could possibly know and then you know for other people it, you know they would never let's say write um, their novel about domestic abuse if if in writing that novel it was assumed that obviously that was their own experience um especially if it was their own experience you know there's there's things that we need ambiguity um i think for people to feel able to write their own stories often even if they are true and um and certainly claudia writes about how it can have a kind of plantational effect to be like oh no you let's say you as a black writer can only write these types of stories because they're yours and vice versa so yeah it you know I don't want to this is one of those conversations that's obviously had ad nauseam but I think that that book and her writing was my way into like finding my own feeling about that conversation yeah and I think that it um continues to be such a touchstone for people as a kind of I I think for a lot of people these these conversations have been had ad nauseam but perhaps only in quite siloed um yeah for people that were within certain uh twitter groups or or just who only encounter certain types of discourse right and i think that that yeah. book continues to be i mean i definitely noticed the shop you know p- people are still reading it and kind of still getting that out of it which is why i think yeah it's, yeah 
I think it was definitely my most successful of all the lectures that I did. You know, when you can like visibly see people like sitting up in their seats and, you know, that's always like a good thing when it comes to like 18 year olds who (laughs) have have better things to do on their phones. (laughs) And so finally, uh, you very helpfully mentioned Ben Lerner. um, Oh yeah, I did. (laughs) (laughs) And narcissism and charges of narcissism and perhaps... uh, perhaps mislaid charges of narcissism so let's talk a bit about um the Topeka school which is the most recent I think as well on the list yeah Uh, that one came out in 2019 didn't it although time what is time I feel very yeah the before could have been five minutes ago I think it was probably one of the last is that true I think it may have been one of the last like big book events I went to to hear him speak about it with um at Tate yeah with with Catherine Catherine, interviewing him yeah. Yeah. And uh well this is now a real peninsula press. It's a loving. It um, was this this was all dined to so that we could we could we could, we could <laughs> talk about um that at the end. But yeah, so what what was your experience of reading it and how do you think it's different maybe to how how do you think he moves the conversation forward from what Rachel Cuss does maybe or other well, I think he does a lot more of a, you know, a conscious weaving in of, of politics and, um, you know, and history. And I think he's, he makes more over links, which, so for me, I guess, it's a more, in some ways, it's a more satisfying book in the sense of, um, you know, I, talking about that scale thing. Like, I really love books, like, obviously, with the kind of Hawkeye and the tennis, where you can take something like the spread. And from that very specific thing that most I had never heard of, obviously, before coming to the book, from that understand like a much, much, you know, broader, wider. Yeah. So just to, to explain to listeners who haven't read the book, it's he, he uses this um, uh, debating technique where debaters have to um, raise as many arguments in favour or against a certain thing. Uh, and it's it's kind of a merely numerical. Um, contest so you have to just basically say as many things as fast as you can Um, because any because any point that's not uh, addressed by the opponent is a point against a point for you or a point against them so you just say as many things as you can which then means that it's almost incomprehensible what has been said. You can watch and... some YouTube some videos on YouTube and it is <laughs> Yeah, like I was going to say, it's worth... <laughs> <laughs> it's quite amazing, isn't it? And so, yeah, I think the way that he um, uses that as a, you know, to make, to make... What I like, I guess, about books, and I think this is what I was trying to do in Asylum Road too, and it may be too um, ambiguous or ambivalent in Asylum Road, and maybe I've opened myself up to, like, the most obvious interpretations... But I, you know, what I want is to maybe go into a book and have my like slightly smug, self-satisfied assumptions about what I think and what this writer also thinks and what I've gone there to have confirmed maybe on some subconscious level is sort of slightly overturned. And maybe not everyone thinks he does this. Maybe some people think Ben Lerner just reinforces some of those smug, (laughs) um, self-satisfied ideas. But I came away from it, I guess, feeling like, you know, understanding my own blind spots my own complicity my own you know let's say in this case like okay I went to a very elite academic institution where you learn how to write very glib essays um that make sort of specious arguments and you haven't really engaged with the subjects you're talking about maybe in a real sense just to get good marks and how that then you know leads to people getting good jobs based on their 
you know ability to bullshit or whatever it is you know and Mm -hmm. and basically I think I came away from this book with both a sense of real satisfaction because he is a fucking genius but also (laughs) a sense of like being taken down a peg by it in a kind of gentle way which is maybe not everyone's you know I guess people may take very different things from that book Um, and again like I, I also loved how I loved how he used psychoanalysis as well as a kind of parallel thing to, um, I suppose, uh, using uh, debate to talk about discourse. So how he uses psychoanalysis to look at and the two the so the two uh, parents of the main character are psychoanalysts or are they ther- or they are they yeah, 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 they, yeah are. they are they um, are yeah to kind of look at how far you can know yourself um, and how far you can know each other. <laughs> Um, yeah and that kind of like forensic attention to like language and or omission or whatever um the idea that you feel very much like everything is just being constantly analyzed and uh and and i mean it's amazing in a way that because obviously so much of this book is very much autobiographical he does have like such an amazingly coherent set of themes and set of subjects in which to lay out this exploration um but I, I remember actually from that talk um, that he did at the Tate that I went to see where he was speaking about it. Um, I think it was becoming a parent had like shifted his own perception of his childhood and the way he saw his own parents. And, um, you know, he talk, I think he used the, the metaphor or the kind of analogy of the bonsai tree where you when you have a child, you suddenly can look down at it like you were both a small child looking up at their parent like you can see suddenly from their perspective and also now you see from the point of view of the parent looking down so you can also see now from your parents perspective and that I think is what makes for me anyway the Topeka school such a for me more, I love both of the previous ones too but like the most successful one is because he also I think gets outside of his own head in yeah. a really interesting way whilst not not pretending to know just what i mean he's like he's exploring that limit in an interesting way yeah i think that so again to explain to people who haven't read the other two it's kind of it's the third in the loose trilogy um about um the artificial main character um and yeah i kind of agree i think that the third one wouldn't have been possible without the other two because you know it starts he 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 can reach for the limit because of the ground that he's built in the two yeah not that you need to necessarily read uh read the other two but i think that he sets up um the relationship with the parents um in in such a way that you get that sense of scale which is kind of what you were talking about with frankie as well uh, yeah i mean i'm looking at this list and i think that that sense of scale is often what i find the most exhilarating in in books is like moving from that tiny detail outward into a much larger space um yeah. That is, I think, what I like more than, you know, the plot twist or the like deeply drawn character. It's that kind of. Um, and I think that, I, I, you know, it's probably what I've tried to do as well in both Sympathy and, and The Silent Road is like find the, you know, the kind of macrocosm in the tiny detail. Yeah. I mean, because I think, I think there's, there's this fallacy that there are things that are universal, which I think isn't true, but I think there is. There are <laughs> things that we share, and I think that finding the limits of those, or kind of investigating the limits of those, is what perhaps some of these books do. 
um yeah and trying to find sympathy i suppose or empathy at those limits is is what especially in um citizen and in the topeka school i think those writers are so successfully doing like yeah if you can't there's only so far that you can know yourself and your place within the wider society then that also extends to how far you sympathize with the people that are around you um yeah yeah that was a very wise that was a very wise thing to say sam thank you very much <laughs> that's my like jerry springer thought of the day round us up <laughs> at the end as the kind of cousins fight in the background um but thank you so much for um spending time with me today in the isolation station we're going to cast you off i i, I haven't really figured out how this metaphor is going to work with the desert island isolation station oh yeah if i could only pick it. one or whatever yeah i, I think mean... you should let's let's have one put you on the spot oh my god uh i think it would have to be the argonauts um pro- probably also because it's the most like for me hopeful and expansive um and i think yeah. if I was if I was left with any of the others, I might never want to come back <laughs> to, you know, to there's, society. There's <laughs> ship, you know, implicit in that as well. So you might be able to get home. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd write out in the sand. Just leave me here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. The in fact, weirdly, the Argonauts as well. Like as a title, I remember when I read that book where she talks a bit about yeah the 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 actual Argonauts. Um, the granny in New York, um, when she she left school at sixteen, and then she ended up getting a kind of job as a typist type person at a little literary magazine in the end called the Argosy. And oh, really? So I remember when I read, yeah, I was like, ooh, connections, <laughs> which is also how my brain works. That that is literally like all I like is these sort of collage effects that go like, you know, make kind of weird occult kind of connections in my mind i'm and... glad for all of our sakes that you became a novelist not a conspiracy theorist Olivia. yeah well it's very it was close to be honest <laughs> the, not, being a novelist does allow me really to lean into that tendency yeah. but luckily through the safety of just interpreting other people's books <laughs> it was it was sympathy or q anon you went the i mean it was l- luckily sympathy came first because it was 2014 but you, you know <laughs> Well, who One knows what's going to happen next? Instead of a third novel, oh we might God, have a cult. Oh my God, this is, this is, br- <laughs> this is exactly <laughs> the kind of interview which you do, A, when you're just like relaxed talking to someone you've met before, and B, in lockdown where you're really unused to conversation. I've come away from this with the soundbite that I'm basically a QAnon <laughs> person um, with like very grandiose ideas about uh, their work. Fine. Don't worry, it's not like this is going to be stored forever, Olivia. And then forgot. you're sent off to your desert island because you've proved yourself to be <laughs> yeah. cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> well on that cancellation um thank you quit well once more. <laughs> and um everyone buy asylum road buy sympathy buy closure read olivia's book and please do save her from having to become a conspiracy theorist <laughs> and have her to continue write more uh novels thanks sam <laughs> <laughs> that was really heartfelt <laughs> <laughs> yeah see that's my i'm back in jerry springer mode but i, I don't think i quite <laughs> stuck the landing there Thank you for having me. Yeah, pleasure. Okay, bye bye. <laughs> bye. Um, oh, I'm okay. still here. How do I turn yeah. off? <laughs> uh, hold on, I'll just close. Gonna get rid of Craig. Well, thank you so much to Olivia for joining us and being so generous with her time. Those are some excellent picks, which I'm sure everyone listening will be hungry to read uh on that note mr fisher how can we uh how can we how can they get a hold of 
Oh yeah, we. You, uh, if you want any of the, all all of the books that Olivia mentioned, you can get them on the website for ten percent off. And of course, you can get Olivia's book, um, which also will have that discount. Both all three of her books, in fact. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I can't recommend them enough. I think Sweet. she's a fantastic writer. And as we were saying on the podcast, please do uh, prevent help prevent her from becoming a conspiracy theorist because you know, <laughs> she writes really well. And most of these guys don't, so we need to. <laughs> Yeah, and I also just want to say from, you know, mention the uh, indie um, fiction subscription and to say from mm-hmm. now on, uh, every, each month we're going to be doing one of these Isolation Station, Desert Island mashup podcasts with the indie fiction subscription. So please do look out for that and get more of an insight into what these indie fiction books are about. Um, mm. Yeah. It's a really great selection. Um, it's been absolute fire so far. If we um... do say so ourselves, eh? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think that's everything, really. Um, I, I don't know. Have you got any closing thoughts or remarks, Sam? Um, not really. No. I mean, <laughs> just hoping that everyone stays well and um, yeah. Okay, but you've added nothing, Sam. Read. You've added nothing. Uh, thank <laughs> you, everyone, for listening. I'll be on my gravestone, Sam Fisher. <laughs> added nothing. <laughs> Great. Okay, that's about. Right.